so I'm here with Nick Broomfield, who is most recently the co-director of Sarah Palin, You Betcha. Nick, how are you doing? Great. It's wonderful to be here in this uh, noisy but wonderful cafe. Okay. The question I have, going back to, for example, Margaret Thatcher, it seems to me that uh, you have a, a special interest in conservative politicians with very interesting hairdos. What, what's, oh. what's up with this particular uh, commonality? <laughs> I, I sense a certain also formalistic commonality as well with the you know chase for, for Maggie and the chase for Sarah here. Uh, what, what of this? Well, I, in fact, I never thought of the similarity of the hairdos, but now you pointed out, yeah. I can see it. Yeah, quite extraordinary. Um, Are you a man who likes big hair? Um, you're, you're a Clintonian man. <laughs> I'm I'm actually not not a particularly big hair man. But I, when I was doing um, the Margaret Thatcher film, uh, one of the people I interviewed was Christopher Hitchens. Yes, who had a lot of sort of almost sexual fantasies about yeah. Margaret Thatcher, and uh, which I hastened to add, I never shared. But I noticed that a lot of people also have the same kind of feelings about Sarah Palin. Yes. Um, and uh, again, I've never f succumbed to those kinds of thoughts with her. But I, I think that um, both of the both women captured the imagination of uh, a large part of the population, probably also because they were women and they had a, a, a determination and a charm that um, was unexpected and was uh, refreshing in its own way. Yeah. Not attracted to Sarah sexually, but I also think to fetishes and also Heidi Fleiss Hollywood right. Madam. It seems that there is some sort of sexual quality sometimes to some of your subjects, especially women. What, what, why do you think this is? Well, I mean, uh, I think, you know, as any uh, full-blooded male, one's interested, I would, you know, apply it more to films. So, yeah, fetishes, Heidi Fleiss. I did a film in uh, a chicken ranch yeah. in a legalized brothel in yeah. Nevada. Um, even someone like Eileen Warnos yes. uh, was was very interesting along those lines, the sexual lines. It's funny, uh, just uh, last week I saw Fred Wiseman in Toronto. He's just made a film in a, yes. a, The Crazy Horse, a strip club, and before that he did the ballet film. And I said to him, Fred, do I get a sense of some kind of through line in your work? Yes. And he said, I'd like to see what you're doing when you're 81 years old. Errol Morris's tabloid as well, while we're on the subject. <laughs> So, oh really? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, what's what's he just done? Uh, he did uh, tabloid on the uh, sex scandal in the 60s. So there we go. There you, you go. All you, you documentary filmmakers are turning into dirty old men. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Just give me a few more years and I'll be uh, completely there. Well, well, to get on a serious subject, since you had experienced difficulties in both tracking down Maggie and Heidi Fleiss Hollywood Madden with dealing with press agents and publicists, you had to know going into this one that you were probably not going to get a sit-down interview with Sarah Palin. Well, I think that um, I always had the belief that I would get one, probably. Um, and it was only after we'd been there for about 10 weeks, just before Christmas, that I really realized with that final phone call with Chuck Heath, the father, yeah. that I wasn't going to get one. Um, I don't know that one would necessarily learn something devastatingly original with a sit-down interview with her because she's done many interviews and nothing very revealing has come out. Generally, she's revealing by omission, which yeah. is she doesn't know something or she mispronounces a word or she fa is factually inaccurate or she um, 
gets things all confused. So she's very revealing generally about lack of knowledge. She's very unrevealing really about herself and her upbringing and even her beliefs. I think she's very guarded. For somebody who studied media at university, she is completely distrusting of the media and it has more control probably over what she says and does than anybody. I mean, the only interview she does is with Fox Television, yeah. uh, who she's employed by, and yeah. uh, obviously Facebook and Twitter. But I did think that um, as we were resident in Wasilla, that maybe we would get a down moment with her that would at least be revealing of her, thank you, of her family and friends and uh, the way she saw life around her or as part of the evangelical community, which is really what Wasilla is. Well, this is interesting because Joe McGinnis also has a book called The Rogue and he managed to get more childhood friends to talk anonymously in that book and you had to go all the way to Alexandria to find someone who would talk with you. I'm curious. Well, you see, but my, my sources were not talking anonymously. They were talking uh, on camera. Yeah. And um, I can back up all my various claims in the film. Uh, whereas I think, you know, one of the problems uh, in quoting undisclosed sources is that you cannot back up your claims. And um, you obviously can't do that in a film. Yeah. I was curious, while we're on the subject of interviews, Heidi Flies Hollywood Madam has the famous moment where you're showing Daryl Gates accept the cash. In this, right. you have one moment where you're talking to Levi Johnston's manager, Tank Jones, and you're negotiating, trying to interview him for $500. And I'm curious about this. Is this kind of thing ethical? Why, I mean, why would it be ethical? And, and I'm wondering if when you do, in fact, pay someone for an interview, do you feel an obligation to feature that on screen? Is, has this always well, been the case for you? Or have you paid well, other people? What I, think was, what I think is interesting is that um, people like Levi Johnson basically live off, I mean, I introduced that whole segment of the film saying that there's an industry yeah. that's grown up around Sarah Palin that people live from that industry. And so that was an illustration of Levi Johnson basically, I mean, I think they were asking $20,000. Yes. Um, so I think my derisory office of 500 was more of a joke than anything else. Yeah. Um, but I think it's very relevant to point out that there is a great deal of money in tabloid journalism and that people are paid to make contributions. Yeah. I mean, I didn't pay anyone in this film. But there have been other films, which yeah. you quite rightly point out. For example, the Heidi Fleiss film. Yeah. Uh, you know, everyone expected to be paid. Everybody in Heidi Fleiss pretty much got paid. Miss Sellers. They all the ex they all expected to be paid. Uh. I don't know. They all got paid, but yes. I mean, um, and I think I make a big a big uh, point of that in the film. Yeah. I, I comment on how much money various people wanted, like Daryl Gates. I think yeah. he wanted $2,000 or $1,500 to take part. But when you introduce money into the equation, yeah. I mean, doesn't this affect what you're going to be getting from your documentary subjects? Well, that I'm making a film about what is. Mm -hmm. And we live in a world that's very commercial and a world that is all to do with money. And uh, as a documentary filmmaker, you're reporting on that world. Um, so if everyone wants money in that world, you report on that fact. And of course it makes a difference, yes. Yeah. 
What about this kind of amateurist aesthetic that is often in your films? I think of the tape running out in Biggie and Tupac. Right. And in this, your efforts to try to cross an iced lake or right. to try to negotiate ice in, in numerous ways or uh, the, the hat trick in, of course, the leader and all that. Right. Um, there's a sort of... Um, You've almost... certainly done your homework here. <laughs> Well, I'm curious about why this exists. I mean, are these deliberate moves on your part to either win over your subjects or win over the audience with a more amateurish approach that's calculated? Or are these well, just mess-ups on your part? I, I would argue that there's a sort of faux professional approach yeah. with a lot of film crews that, you know, when they climb back in the car and they drive onto the Lex location, I'm sure they're a whole lot of fun. And they crack a whole lot of jokes, which are not in the film. Yeah. But when they get the cameras out, they get the clipboards out, and they become these sort of serious professionals, which I think is a load of bullshit. You know, I think uh, it's much better to um, reveal what it's really like to be doing that film, and what you really think, and what the humor is, you know, rather than having this sort of, you know, I remember when I was working for television, um, I was working with a presenter and the presenter was actually a very funny guy and he would I remember we were making a film in a monastery and he would get into all these kind of arguments with the monks about whether God existed or how many angels could you get on the head of a, uh, a pin and all those classic debates and he would always lose the arguments because the monks and the abbot and so on well, that's all they did and they were they studied all the books and they were really up on their theology and logic. Uh, and when I showed the film to the TV company, they were horrified because they, they said, you know, a professional reporter does not lose his way, yeah. does not stumble over words, doesn't sort of turn to the camera and say, I'm stuck. Yeah. But of course they do. And I think uh, by including those kinds of things, you make a much more accurate portrait than if you leave them out. I think there's a sort of faux professionalism that we're surrounded by that uh, is completely inaccurate. But doesn't your persona, your shtick, sometimes get in the way of the very subjects that you're photographing? I mean, there, you know, every time you make a telephone call in your movies, you're always in the car. Right. And... Um, and I'm wondering why you feel the need to, to film that as well. It's almost as if uh, you're counting on the subject to say no. <laughs> well, what, I mean, what, you know, it's, it's just, uh, I don't really understand your point. I don't know whether you're saying that phone calls are irrelevant or the fact that I'm in a car is irrelevant or... Well, I, I'm trying to point out that you're really trying to show yourself more than anything else. You're not showing, like, say, another clip on top of your phone call. It's well, the camera's very much on you, and you always tend to be in a car. So there's this sense that, oh, I'm committing journalism, I'm always on the go. I, I mean, you have I don't, to well, I, don't, yeah. I think, for example, the Tank Jones phone call, which yeah. you quoted before, is very revealing about the amount of money that people want and the yeah. kind of information they're pre prepared to give. The other phone call that I have, in fact, I'm not, I, I'm there for the very beginning of it, the one yeah. with Steve Schmidt, and the rest of it is all against archive footage of Sarah Palin. Yeah. So, you're incorrect. Well, I want to also ask you about this tendency to sometimes introduce almost the documentary equivalent of ad hominem, like, you know, Biggie and Tupac in Happier Dunkin' Donuts Days. 
Uh, that was actually, that was Heidi Fleiss. Uh, I'm sorry, Heidi Fleiss, my apologies. Right. That's what I meant. And in this, for example, you well, have... Well, because I think, you know, cops like to me, it's a joke. It's a joke? But it's a joke. Does, does this distract from the story? Why do you feel the well, need well, to Well, of course it humor? doesn't distract from the story. I mean, in our culture, our mythology, cops always hang out in Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah. And so it's very funny that he actually wanted to meet at Dunkin' Donuts. But why comment on the guy's weight? Because I think it's part of our culture, part of our mythology, that cops eat in Dunkin' Donuts. The questions near the end of the film in which you I ask... Know, I know, so no, I don't think it detracts from it at all. I think it gives a layer of humanity to uh, a lot of these subjects, which they need. The questions near the end of the film where you ask various subjects about the possibility of Sarah Palin being president. I mean, I'm wondering whether this is really a serious question even now in 2011 where you have Mitt Romney, Rick Perry as, as more legitimate candidates. Well, I asked those questions some time ago, but for example, various people like John Bittney only took part in the film because um, actually I asked the question before Tucson. Yeah. And, and I think at that point she looked like a very real uh, possibilities a candidate for the Republican nomination. I know that people like Steve Schmidt, um, who was obviously the you know the senior uh, the senior McCain uh, advisor, John Bittney, who was her campaign manager and legislative director, who were two very uh, knowing and powerful people in that Palin world, both considered her to be a real threat for a Republican. Um, for getting the Republican nomination. And that's why they took part in the film. Mm -hmm. And that's why they were as forthright as they were in their views. So, yes, I think she was considered very much to be a viable presidential candidate at one point in time. Aside from the short that you did, this is your first documentary since His Big White Self. And I'm wondering why you have been doing more narratives of late. Is it a situation where the documentary style that you do is sort of a young man's game, or I mean, was it a money situation? Was it the Kickstarter campaign? What of this? No, I think um, you know I'm somebody. I've made like 30 films now, so I like to make different kinds of films. I'm going to do another feature after this one, then I'll probably do another documentary. But a lot of people who are able to make lots of films, unfortunately I am, uh, you know, like Kevin McDonald, for example, or even someone like Michael Winterbottom, we yeah. flip-flop around between doing documentaries and features. And it's, uh, it, it's just a more interesting way of living. And I think you come back to something, you're refreshed, and you're, otherwise uh, you don't want to be making the same film. And it's, it requires a very different way of thinking. It's a bit like being a criminal lawyer and being a civil lawyer. I think occasionally it's great for guys who make a massive amount of money doing divorce law or, uh, or you know, um, estate law, go in and do some criminal cases, which are very um, adrenaline-oriented and you have to be very quick on your feet to think about it. And documentaries, for me, are that way of thinking. I mean, making a feature is much more... Uh, being prepared, writing a, a very detailed script. There's much less room for uh, spontaneity and improvisation in it. But um, I think the thing, the two things go 
and reinforce the kind of qualities you need in each other. Wearing red flannel throughout your expeditions in Wasilla. I like red flannel. You like red flannel? Yeah, I Not do a Not a specific lot. aesthetic choice. I mean, I got to have the red no, flannel No, I like jacket. it. I like it. It looks good against white, white snow, too. The reason they wear it is so you can find you, you know, when you get lost. Yeah. I didn't want to get lost, so I wore red flannel. I like it anyway. I like the color. Did you ask Colleen Cottle to put on lipstick when you were interviewing Absolutely her? Absolutely not. She did that of her own volition? As I didn't ask her, she must have done. Um, what of J.C. McCavitt? He tells you that he can take the heat in telling you details about the Palins, um, but there's a suggestion that he's maybe having some difficulty getting some work. Do you believe that this Palin influence in Wasilla is, is overstated to some degree? What, what of this? Did you find anything after the making of this film to lead you to believe that what people were telling you in terms of Palin's whirling with an iron fist was uh, perhaps uh, a little overstated? No, I think it's correct. Why? I mean, I was there for 10 weeks and, and she has a lot of power and the church she belongs to. The evangelical right in Wasilla basically controls Wasilla. Yeah. And if you work in a coffee shop like this, probably 50% to 80% of your clients are going to be from the Assembly of God Church. And if you do not support the Assembly of God Church or you come out and say a whole lot of stuff about Sarah Palin they don't like, you're going to have an empty coffee shop or you're going to be fired as an assistant from behind the counter. Why do you think Wasilla reflects America, or does it reflect America? I don't know. I don't know that. It, I've never said that it does. I think Wasilla reflects an evangelical community that's out of control. There was an interesting suggestion from a Variety review that you are moved in some sense by a spirit of retaliation when you can't actually get an interview from your subject. I want to put forth this question to you, Nick. If retaliation guides some of your impulses as a documentary filmmaker. Okay, I'll tell it to you in a very uncomplimentary way. They're full of shit. They're full of shit? You can quote me. Okay, but what it, does, is vengeance a quality that motivates you? Is the, no, uh, that's, that's just absolutely... I think it says more for the guy who wrote the review than it does me. I mean, I, when you make these films, it's like when you're writing a biography. Um, the people who know you and the people who work for you, the people who um, grew up with you, are going to be much more insightful about you than you are about yourself. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, if you're doing a biography about Margaret Thatcher or you're doing a biography about Eugene Terreblanche or any of these people, it's going to be the nearest and dearest who are going to paint an accurate portrait of that person. I don't really think... If, you know, we've seen Sarah Palin do 101 interviews. She's very unrevealing, as I said before. Yeah. Except by omission. So, no, that's, you know, I, I think it says a lot about the guy who wrote the review. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really get it myself. What about the chewing gum picture montage that you have? I mean... Well, she wasn't chewing gum. She, it was a montage of pictures, but the woman... Yeah was talking about chewing gum behind the that's montage. That's true, that's true. Right. But it sort of reflects what the blogger was telling you about, I use this particular picture for this mood, for this post. If I want her to look upset, I'll use this picture. Um, I don't think she looked like she was chewing gum. Huh. I, I think it was just, you know, I thought it was a, 
I think she's got an interesting face and I think the expressions are interesting. And it was kind of like, it was more trying to work out how you could use some very interesting comments about her without having any footage of her in a council meeting chewing gum. Yeah. That would somehow work with that voice, which I thought was very, I thought it was very interesting and revealing. So the visual is just as important as the facts that you dig up? Well, I think you're making it, you know, one's writing, one's not writing an article, you're, you're making a film, so absolutely. Oh, I actually wanted to ask about your collaboration with Joan Churchill yeah. as well. Um, yeah. You've been sharing credits with her for the last few films, and right. I'm wondering if uh, what deal was struck to give her half of the, of the credit like this, or what, how this came about, because she had photographed well, some stuff before. Well, we've been, we've been working, you know, from the first film that I made after I left film school. Yeah. Uh, which was Juvenile Liaison. We, yep. you know, co-directed that in, I think, way back in 1976. And we've done a whole bunch of films. And I think, you know, when you're making documentary films, it's very much the chemistry of the main crew that make the film. And the main crew is largely two people. I mean, we had four people on this, on this film. Um, so I think the credit reflects that. Yeah. Why did you put yourself in front of the camera after Lily Tomlin? Uh, because in the Lily Tomlin film, um, I never really felt we got to the essence of the experience of making the film. Um, Why? Because um, Lily Tomlin, who initially wanted us to make the film, uh, like a lot of performers, is very insecure. Um, and insecure to verging on paranoid and became convinced after a while that her show was going to be an enormous flop, that she couldn't get it together, that it wasn't working, and that somehow we were going to make sure that the world saw this terrible flop. So she became very kind of difficult to film. And we had all these sort of great stories about Lily Tomlin in the making of the film. Like, you know, sometimes we were lucky if we got half a minute of film a week with yeah. her. Um, but none of that experience was actually in the film. None of the agony of working with somebody as insecure as Lily Tomlin was actually visible to the audience. But it was very much a defining ingredient of her and her genius yeah. is that she's incredibly insecure and constantly pushing herself to another level. Uh, and I think when we finished the film, we both felt that it was not the best film that we could have made. We could have made a film in a different way that would have been much more accurate. So putting yourself in front of the camera was a way... Well, when you say putting yeah. yourself in front of the camera, I think it's a slight misrepresentation. It's more like you are... Um, every film has people behind the camera filming. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So what you're really saying is I think it's more like once moving the camera back slightly so that it catches more of the process, which is you actually see the filmmaker uh, going through some of the, the things that you go through in order to make a film. Um, I think one of the things that I always found a bit unsatisfactory with a lot of 
documentaries and documentaries I made is that you get no real sense of the filmmaker or their relationship with the subject, which is very much a defining ingredient. Yeah. So I think it's an attempt probably to give the audience a bit more information. You feel that films in which the filmmaker does reveal his relationship to the audience like this are more honest than films that remain sort of objective? You know, I, would, I wouldn't ever um, attach some kind of moral label to it. I think you can potentially make a more interesting film, a more engaging film, um, and a film that is more complicated. For you, why is that approach more complicated? Why is it what? For you, why is that approach of being in front of the camera more complicated? Well, because you're, it's a bit like um, some of those buildings, um, like the Pompidou, for example, in Paris, that shows the construction of the building. Um, and I think for people wandering through that building, by seeing the construction of the building, you just see, um, you're kind of let into another part of the puzzle. It's more inclusive. It's more, yeah, it's more complicated. You can see that actually um, to, get the, to get a building of that size up and, and uh, is, is, an, is a kind of a massive undertaking. Sure. If the Nick Broomfield in front of the camera is in some sense an artificial Nick, not necessarily the true Nick, how can the audience trust you? How can your sources trust you when you're talking to them, your subjects? Well, I don't know that that's true. I mean, I think it's, it's all part of... Um, I don't think it's, it's, uh, it's necessarily, a, a, you know, a, an artifice. I think it's. Um, I think it's it's very much you know who I am and what that situation is and. Um, I don't think I I think you know you're taking it too seriously and you're maybe asking just a few too many uh, moral questions. I think it's. it's Isn't morality important to documentary well, films? Well, <laughs> I, I think it's very dangerous. And I think, you know, morality has been something that has paralyzed documentary filmmakers for. I mean, I, I remember when I was at film school, there were so many debates about morality that people were frightened to pick up a camera and go and make a film. Yeah. Um, and I think there needs to be a subjective morality, which is. Um, the filmmakers need to ask themselves uh, whether they think that the film really reflects what their experiences was and what, what they found. I don't think it, you know, I don't think all these kind of objective morality tests, I think they're dangerous and I think they're inaccurate. And I'm going to quickly go and have a pee. Well, hold that thought. Okay. Sure. Okay. Before you mixturated, we were talking about morality and the idea of documentary filmmaking being paralyzed somehow by morality. And so I was curious well, to... Well, I think yeah. that... Um, I don't know about you, but when I went to university, which I did before film school, yeah, um, one of my first questions I got in... in, uh, in I think it was my logic or my um, political theory class was... Um, does objective truth exist? So you kind of go through all that, and you know, of course, objective truth does not exist. Uh, and then it comes down to sort of individual truth. And uh, 
conscience and um, and belief. <clears throat> and I think um, for a long time there was a sort of false objective truth, which I think is the most dangerous kind, which uh, I guess the BBC was famous for when there was a British Empire and you would have that sort of uh, voice of God, they used to call it, talking in the commentary that would um, so-called they had this, this concept or notion of balance that if you made a film about something, you would have to balance the argument. You would have to have the pros and the cons. Yeah. And you as the filmmaker with the voice of God were basically the arbiter of justice, which of course was all bullshit because um, it was all done within the framework of the British Empire. So yeah. uh, the context was very limited or the parameters were very limited. Um, and so it was doubly misleading. Not only was it a pack of lies, but you were also claiming it was objective truth. Yeah. Um, and, and I felt from very early on that it was much better that you um, make a subjective film, which is uh, more like a diary or more like a series of impressions uh, born from a personal quest uh, with no pretensions of objective truth. Uh, which people can take or leave. Yeah. Were you ever paralyzed by any of these imposed limits? I don't believe in paralysis. Oh, you don't? No. Huh. No diffidence? I, I'm never, no fear? I'm never paralyzed. Yeah. No. Even well, at that moment uh, when you're, you're kind of on the sidelines, you're not sure whether you're going to dig in there and actually go ahead and ask... Good old Maggie Thatcher, a question. No, the, uh, I, I see. I saw the younger Nick there going. Oh well, he's uh, he's a little uh, kind of vacillating. I think some of those public uh, question moments are pretty awful, actually. Yeah. Uh, and certainly, though they are, they are. Yeah. But I don't think. I, I don't think. Um, I thought we were talking more about mor mor moral paralysis. We're talking about paralysis of all ty all types. Uh, all kinds. Yes. We yes. moved on radically. Here. <laughs> exactly. Well, the paralysis of jumping off a top by diving board or jumping yeah. out of an aeroplane with yes. a I yes. would be yes. I would move into paralysis there. Yeah. Yeah. How much of your documentaries are I suppose motivated by this sense of, by any sense of restraint? Of restraint. By, by restraint, yes. Um, I think uh, I'm sure that there is restraint, but I would regard it as a weakness. Oh, okay. How so? Well, I think you, you, you don't want to give in to restraint. I don't think it's... Uh, I, I think you want to be as open as possible. And I think that includes trying to find people um, to get as wide a, uh, a view on a particular subject as you can. As um, I mean, I don't see any virtue in restraining your view or restricting your view. What about budgetary restraints or, for example, have recent developments in film, the collapse of hedge funds, affected your ability no. to... No. Because you've always worked fairly small to begin with and you've kind of got this down to a science now? Because I've never used hedge funds. Yeah. But what about investors? How do you get an investor to sign on? Um, you know, it's very easy for me to make documentaries, so I don't, I don't have a problem there. It's harder with the features. Mm -hmm. um, uh, 
but so if you have any tips on you know people in head funds who want to invest in my next feature that's well, great well well how, how do you convince someone to invest in a nick broomfield movie what, what what do you have to do in a documentary or a documentary a or feature yeah well they're different yeah so, you know the documentaries have you know i've been doing them a long time yeah. and there's a market for them and it's kind of much easier um, but I think the you know the features uh, is, is a more probably you know independent features are very precarious. They're much more precarious than uh, documentaries because I think documentaries have a much more certain market than independent features. I think the art house feature yeah. uh, is at a, a particularly vulnerable position and obviously a lot of people have just gone into television rather than attempting to make that work anymore. If you have such a certain market, why did you turn to Kickstarter for distribution? I know investors kicked in later, but I'm curious about well, is this because, more of an experiment? Or? You know, this was, well, partly, but um, we were, I made a film basically that was funded by essentially British television yeah. with a particular budget. And that budget was for it to go on television. So when suddenly the film was getting a theatric release and uh, we were having to deliver in a very different way and make trailers and posters and get errors and emissions insurance and all that sort of thing, it was actually far more than the 30000 on Kickstarter. Sure. Um, I needed to get more money. That's what that represented. You mentioned that you needed to have a serious shift after Lily Tomlin in your documentaries. And I'm curious if you foresee any additional sort of major paradigm shift in your future documentaries. Um, well, I think um, the last two that I did were, were very much working with non-actors and shooting them in a very real way. Um, and I think what I want to do in this next film is to shoot in a, a very visual way. I'm working with, with actors this time, and um, I think um, I'm, I'm much more influenced by films that don't have a lot of dialogue, that use expressions or visual references to make a point. And so I think for me, the next film is going to be much more an exercise of making a film which has a feeling of reality to it and has very real scenes as well but which is also more overtly visual and, and is less dialogue dependent than I've worked in the past well on that note Nick thanks very much it's a pleasure to it's still on nigga thug life thug life I love when they shit for the boy yeah nigga Tupac and this motherfucker all my homies drinking liquor, tears in every